This yes. is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. So you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You voted and you took down Trump. The presidency of Donald Trump is over. And as all the networks were telling us for the last several days, the past several days, that is, democracy works, despite us getting to choose between two candidates who support fracking and can't wait to fund police even more. I mean, sure, Trump still may be president in January. After all, he is starting his campaign rallies up again to stir up opposition to the outcome of the election, and he's definitely going to be suing until he is told he can't sue anymore. But hey, you voted and Trump ostensibly will not be president come Inauguration Day. The relief was palpable. Reports were coming in of people taking to the streets and celebrating, images flashing on the screens of people standing around in large groups looking happy and, well, like at most protests, incredibly bored. They were happy because no more Trump as they just participated in democracy and chose a new president. Or they just participated in a kind of democracy and that they were complicit in propping up a system of racism, sexism, fascism, totalitarianism, imperialism, and more than anything. Continuing settler colonialism. Look, I get it. If it, it may feel good right now that it's possible Trump will not be president in 2021. But as our guest reminds us today, the system that just elected Joe Biden is not a system worth celebrating. It's a system worth challenging. And in our guest view, it's a system worth dismantling. Today, we'll be talking to activist scholar Mohammed Abdu, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Let Empire Collapse, Why We Need a Decolonial Revolution. Mohammed is author of the forthcoming book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances, which is scheduled to be published in May of next year. He is a former adjunct professor at Queens University, is currently teaching a course on indigenous land education and black geographies at the University of Toronto and social justice education at the university's Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. Mohammed is is a self-identifying Muslim anarchist, activist, scholar, and diasporic settler of color living on unceded Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Well, it's Monday, so it must be Daphne Agassin. Daphne, how was your weekend? Hi, my weekend was um, good since summer's back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for global global warming, right? Yeah, so I played some volleyball. I want to say so. Also, I there's something I want to do. I want to go to see the Monet exhibit. It closes January 18. I didn't go, but I did see a YouTube video about it. That's really good. So you're freaked out about going to museums too. No, I'm less good than you with COVID. <laughs> I, well, I was just talking to uh, my girlie last night about how we wanted to go to a museum and look at some art. And I was just like, I don't know, man. I'm just too freaked out by COVID still. I, between hypochondria and OCD, it just does not work well when you're in a pandemic. I don't know, but paintings get really good ventilation. No, that's a good point. That's a very good point. My weekend was fantastically boring. However, I ended up working on the show a lot this weekend, and I'm making a vow to myself that this weekend, beginning at 6 p.m. this Friday, I'm not working on the show all weekend long. I'm not going to. More importantly, Daphne, what was last week's question from hell for our listeners, which we didn't get a chance to finalize on Thursday because I was at home sick. So what was last week's question from hell for our listeners, Daphne? Last week's question from hell was, what happens? <laughs> so what happens as in last Tuesday's election or the ongoing election? All answers will be read on air. The rest of our answers will be read on air following today's guest. The person with our favorite answer to last week's question from hell wins our new Graham Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Graham Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answers to last week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet them to us. You can email them to us, but we have to have the answer, your answer in by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. Daphne will be sharing the rest of your answers to last week's question from hell following our guest. Again, last week's question from hell is, what happens? What happens? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Daphne has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a classic asparagus. 
Last week, Fox News posted the article Suffering from a Post-Election Day Hangover? Here's how to survive. Obviously, the best way to avoid a hangover is not to drink in the first place. But we're well past that stage. I love how that's from Fox News. I just love every part of that. According to the story, researchers in one Korean study also observed that asparagus, especially the amino acids found in the leaves and shoots, were helpful in speeding up the process of metabolizing alcohol. Those effects were observed when the asparagus was eaten prior to the onset of a hangover. Though there were still benefits to the already hangover, the researchers believed. That makes this week's hangover cure asparagus, preferably eaten prior to drinking. Who knew? I had no idea it was a prior to drinking thing. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. If you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Sure, you can get the This Is Hell face mask or trucker's cap or t-shirt or tote bag or coffee mug, all in their new gray on black design to show your support. But you can also become a subscriber to This, this Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts. Right now, it's like getting an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me, brand new monologues by me, and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared our first interview we did following the election of Barack Obama as President of the United States, a talk we had on November 8th, 2008, with the prosecutor of Charles Manson, author of Helter Skelter, the late great Vince Bugliosi, whose book The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder had just been published. Back then, we actually thought that a President Obama would hold the Bush administration accountable for lying the world into the Iraq War, which killed hundreds of thousands, displaced millions, and also implemented a policy of torture worldwide, which is all part of a forever war that the United States is still fighting and expanding to this day. So instead of justice... We got more war, and George W. Bush's approval ratings among Democrats has probably, those numbers have probably gone over 60% overnight, with W. congratulating Joe Biden on his victory before Trump concedes, if Trump concedes. On Patreon, we also offered a profile of Trump's voters by a Trump voter in small-town America, explained why, the, why he was voting for Trump in a letter to his small-town weekly newspaper. But you can only hear our interview with Manson prosecutor Vince Bugliosi on the case for, of murder against President George W. Bush and interview every Democrat right now. Anyone who has a favorable view of W should listen to over and over again because it's getting pretty embarrassing that three out of five Democrats have a favorable, favorable impression of an alleged war criminal. And a Trump voter, we also have you know, a Trump voter explaining why they voted Trump. By, and you can only hear any of that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Speaking of which, when I got home from Friday's Patreon podcast, someone on social media had asked if others could share what is happening in right-wing circles because they didn't have any friends who were Trump supporters. Keep in mind, this is Friday, late morning, early afternoon, back in those heady days of not knowing how the vote totals would end up in places like Pennsylvania and Georgia, Nevada and North Carolina and Arizona. So, like the person seeking right-wing insights, I don't have many Trump friends, and the few I do have, I never see anything of theirs on social media. So, even the few Trump friends I do have, mostly family, their opinions are never to be seen, as the algorithm hides them all from my view. I know they post weird right-wing things because other relatives send me messages saying things like, Can you believe what your cousin said this time? And sure, I can believe it, but no, I had no idea because I never see their posts for whatever reason. So for those of you like me who have very little or even no contact with Trump voters, here's some of a more universal view of the right, not contained within only one small county's small paper's opinion page from one letter writer, as profiled on Patreon last Friday. The person who requested posts from friends' right-wing friends were incredibly insightful because I had no idea about some of the stuff that they were discussing. Uh, 
seriously, I mean, some of it is obvious. Sure, it gets sexist and racist and has a lot of the usual cliches. But there are conversations I had no idea were happening with topics of which I, I was completely clueless and possibilities and potentialities of which I was thoroughly ignorant. I mean, sure, it starts with, they stole this election from Donald. This is why I'm calling on Trump to start a third party. This is why I hate the Republicans. F these a-holes. Cocaine Mitch McConnell has not said a word. Is there really a call for a third party, a Trump party? Seriously, is that happening? And what would that mean? I mean, would that just split the Republican vote? Who would get more votes in 2024? Tom Cotton in the Republican Party or Donald Trump from the Trump Party? And would that mean that all of a sudden the Democrats would just all this abandon neoliberalism or would they become the centrist Republicans or would Tom Cotton be? I, I'm, I really want to know what this third Trump Party would be like. And then there's that cocaine Mitch reference. So according to the Associated Press, Don Blankenship coined the cocaine Mitch moniker in a campaign end during his failed Senate run from West Virginia in 2018. He was referring to a 2014 magazine article alleging that drugs were found aboard a commercial cargo ship owned by the family of McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, who serves as Pre President Donald Trump's transportation secretary. So... I don't know why Cocaine Mitch would do anything, do anything he could to stop Trump from being in office, especially if Trump has coke on Mitch's wife and is still giving her a job. There's a meme of an American flag that's being shared amongst the right with a portion cut out, and that portion looks like the Texas state flag, and the image is accompanied by the words Plan B. So secession and Texas, because it's mistakenly believed on the right that Texas can more easily secede than other states, but that appears to have been debunked by legal scholars, even those on the right. Biden will make another comment is that Biden will make a vaccine mandatory. And if you refuse to get the vaccine, you will go to prison. He wants abortion at full term at your convenience, and he will take away all gun rights. Abortion at full term, that one is completely new to me. Turns out it's a reference to a charge against Alabama Senator Doug Jones made by the winner of last week's election, Tommy Tuberville, which turns out to be completely false. It's a reference to a motion on moving a bill forward that was voted along party lines 48 to 47, and Jones joined in with his colleagues to vote on legislation that included expanding the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits any federal funding of abortion. So what does that have to do with full-term abortion? Nobody has any clue. And what is a full-term abortion? Again, absolutely no idea. There will be no police, one commenter states, and that means no 9-11, and you need 9 because you will be in a civil war. Biden will get rid of all bondsmen, so if you go to jail, you cannot post bond. Now, that's an utter confusion of ending bail. It doesn't mean, ending bail doesn't mean you stay in jail forever. It only means that you can leave without paying money, that you are not a hostage of the state, that you get to leave and go home until trial. And there's, of course, the medley of theocracy that was being posted, expose the corruption and backdoor deals in this election in Jesus' name, strengthen him, Lord, protect him, Father. Of course, there's mentions of voter fraud. There's no way Biden won because Trump's rallies had more people than Biden's rallies. Of course, the smaller crowd sizes in the Biden rallies were intentional by his campaign. So it's like saying sports fans like football more than basketball or hockey because fans weren't allowed to be in the stands at NBA or NHL games, but they are allowed in some NFL venues. And again, sorry for the sports analogy. This is not America, another posted, which I'm certain Democrats will be posting if Trump ends up getting a second term. And this is definitely America because even I'm using sports analogies. The mainstream media is part of the coup. Trump will not concede and we will fight. Man, the mainstream media can't even do a coup, right? I mean, coups usually happen a lot smoother and a lot faster than this. COVID-19 was made up by the Democrats in cahoots with China to get rid of Trump. This may be the worst crime committed against humanity ever. Damn, the mainstream media may be bad at coups, but hat tip to the Democrats and their ability to successfully negotiate a deal with China. And thanks for saying this may be the worst crime against humanity ever because slavery and the Holocaust and about a million other crimes against humanity may be worse. 
There's also an entire Reddit thread titled, When Do We Start Hanging Traitors in Front of Liberty Bell? With the first comment arguing they would rather do it in front of the Lincoln Memorial, which I gotta agree with. That is, if I had to choose, I mean... Who wants, as a backdrop, a broken bell when you can have a sitting Lincoln looking over the execution like a creepy vision of death? Fox News, you are evil. Retract your call on Arizona. You are going to lose viewers big time, I promise you. And somehow I don't think Fox News is going to lose any viewers. Sure, CNN's numbers were better for parts of last week, election week, while votes totals were you know, coming in still, but I seriously doubt from the 70 million who voted for Trump that Fox is worried about the ratings and this whole notion that Trump lost because Fox News viewers were so disheartened by CNN polls that they didn't vote. That's ridiculous. Why would they believe anything CNN says? And do they even watch CNN? I thought that was the whole point. They were watching Fox News. Our country is newly corrupted, another said. So sad. Newly corrupted. At least they're admitting it was already corrupted. It's just that Biden is a new kind of corruption. And hey, we got to learn a new kind of corruption. So that's something. A revote must would be appropriate in other states, which is the worst thing anybody posted because I do not want to go through that again. That's just cruel. When the shooting starts, don't sit around like a bitch. Everyone has to make a choice. To which another responded, the optics would absolutely kill MAGA outright and hand power to the Dems for the next four years. People dying are only a concern when it comes to optics, not, you know, when it comes to actually killing people. Then there's the person posting that at the big tech Jew-owned sites, they are not allowed to talk black crime, racial differences in intelligence, white genocide, Jews' domination of the media, the Holocaust, women in politics, the effects of pornography, the man-made global warming hoax, the Chi-Com virus hoax, and the insanity of the Democratic Party. And I'm betting their views on all those topics are dripping with hate, although I am curious about their take on the effects of pornography, because if they believe the effects of pornography are anything but fantastic, I'm pretty sure the far right has a very short shelf life. So, if you don't have any friends who support Trump, now you know. The vote was stolen. Trump should start his own party. It's cocaine Mitch's fault. Despite Trump employing Mitch's wife, secede now because President President Biden's going to force us all to take a vaccine or go to prison. Full-term abortions. No 911. The end of bail, meaning everyone must stay in jail until trial. Please, Jesus, save Trump from voter fraud because Trump clearly won as his rallies had more people. A coup by mainstream media, a new kind of corruption. COVID was made by the Dems in China to get rid of Trump. Locations for hypothetical lynchings are being considered. Fox News is evil. Let's have a revote. Choose your side because the shooting is going to start, although that may be bad optics. And finally, the Jews and the myriad conspiracy theories that flow from anti-Semitism, which includes racism and sexism. If you had no idea, now you know what the people you don't know are saying. You're welcome, and this is hell. Coming up, did we just participate in democracy, or were we complicit in an oppressive system? We'll also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is is hell. Settler colonialism is far from over. It exists every day. Its impact and legacy, how it has affected and continues to affect society and culture have been devastating the planet and to the people. In order to attain true liberation, that system needs to be challenged. And as our guest argues, it needs to end if we want to address the many crises we face today and moving forward. Here to make us rethink or help us rethink celebrating whatever the hell that was last week, activist scholar Mohammed Abdu wrote the Roar magazine article, Let Empire Collapse, Why We Need a Decolonial Revolution. Welcome to This is Hell, Mohammed. Thank you very much, Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. Humbled and honored, you know, in the topsy, topsy-turvy world that we live in, this empty, liberal, hollowed-out world of you know, words and Euro-American euphemisms, access of evil, war on terror, simulated drowning, this preventive war, civilians killed are being referred to as collateral damage, and CIA kidnappings are called extraordinary renditions, Homeland Security and the Pentagon. But anyways, I am grateful, um, yeah, to be with you all. Thank you so much for being on the show. We are speaking again with activist scholar Mohammed Abdul, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Let Empire Collapse. 
So you write that I am part of a we that says let empire collapse. A we that says to build alternatives to empire, we must expose the illegitimacy of the dreadful dream we are in. Instead of trying to shore or salvage the world as it is, we need to recognize the 20th century feminist Audrey Lord that says that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So the master's tools will never be able to dismantle the master's house. Can empire can settler colonialism, can that be defeated at the ballot box? No, absolutely not. I mean, that's a politics of recognition. That's a politics of reform. As Charles Taylor, it's basic phenomenon. Glenn Coulthard, Dene, Glenn Coulthard argued uh, very similarly. So uh, voting is a tactic. It's not a strategy, ultimately speaking. And so is reactionary street politics. So ultimately, different people voted for, and different contingents of different people, be it black, be it indigenous, voted for all kinds of different reasons. It's not monolithic in any way. And so people that did not vote whatsoever. The question then becomes, as far as I'm concerned, what are social movements up to that are on the ground? Uh, that is the determining horizon, the horizontalist horizon, and the possibilities of what's going on in the streets, as opposed to this recurring Tahrir moment. Now, we have to also distinguish between Protests, which I absolutely support, but given my experience with two revolutions, real revolutions, as opposed to the armchair theorization of them as as scholar activist, um, what are the prospects of moving from reactionary street politics, the politics of protest, to actually learning lessons and building on lessons from the black power, red power movements, in which alternatives were being engaged, and we are actually constructing alternatives and grassroots alternatives, free clinics, free schools, et cetera, et cetera, given the fact that these... uh, Again, and I don't mean to demean of the performative or symbolic importance of protest politics uh, whatsoever, but they provide a moment of opportunity for coalescence, coalescence around solidarity, allyship, discussions to be founded, to be engaged insofar as the liberatory and emancipatory horizons, particularly for BIPOC folks. If that's not seized, then it becomes another Tahrir moment, another uprising. yeah, another Occupy, and so on and so forth. So this Zapatista has paved the way for that insofar as 25 years ago, if not over, insofar as what, uh, insofar as the exemplary mission of what revolutionary organizing is, uh, the construction of alternatives, uh, as in uh, actual practical alternatives on the ground, as I noted, reconnecting with land, you know, settler colonialism, that's a structure, it's an ongoing event. Uh, It's also a religious structure, uh, mind you. It's a crusading Protestant structure that started in 1492. uh, That very much coincided with the fall of Grenada. Muslims were exposed to at least three crusades prior to that. So what's the significance of the connection between that on a transnational level and what happened here in 1492? It's a project that engages an ongoing genocide, not genocide that has happened in the past. Um, and also an ongoing afterlife to slavery, as Adia Hartman uh, and many indigenous and black and Afro-indigenous scholars such as Tiffany Lethabo Kink have noted uh, very admirably. So unless there is alternatives, there is an intellectual coalescence of the need for addressing political theology, political liberations, political spirituality, whatever you wish to uh, frame it within, and there are various different terms that have been used by Foucault, by others, by myself, so far as that component of the discussion, because we are in a spiritual war just as much as we are in a cultural war, one that BIPOC folks have been worn into before we've even come to realize or fathom our position or implication of our privileges and penalties in this war within itself. And it's a circular war, one that operates between settler colonialism and so-called post-colonial societies that never really decolonized. That becomes the question. Is voting sufficient? Is saying the first African-American president, Obama, is saying the first uh, Secretary of State Susan Rice, the first uh, uh, Joint Chief of Staff, um, insofar as Powell Harris, the first uh, Indian Black Vice President now, a prosecutor, cop, a carceral feminist, uh, one who's been relentless with regards to her attacks on sex workers. Is that sufficient? But that's liberal multiculturalism for you, the first, the first, the first. Uh, and that's the problem, too, with liberal progressive positions, insofar as they're eliding of settler colonialism. Again, genocide is not a thing of the past. Slavery is not a thing of the past, nor are the modern plantations. Uh, we just shift terms. Uh, that's a matter, but this is why I started. We're in a war of words, of logic, but of also winning hearts and minds of organizing on the ground. And of course, these alternatives and this intellectual project would have to be defended by arms if need be. But again, arms is anything else as a tactic. It's not a strategy. So, um, 
so yeah, that's, sorry about the long-winded response. Uh, no, yeah. it, was a, it was a great response. You mentioned that uh, the world has never been decolonized. I think that's a, one of the big blind spots that many in the West have is that they believe that the world has been decolonized, that, that colonization is a thing of the past. How can that view be overcome? How can the world view that colonialism is over, that it is a thing of the past, that it is a thing of over a century ago, if not more? How can that view be overcome? Well, it's spanning 600 years, right? If we take 1492 as the historical marker of the founding of this Columbian conquistador that passes itself for a secular humanist sort of project, despite the fact that you have God and trust on a $1 bill, etc. And it's not even worth the paper that it's printed on, let alone pledging sovereignty towards the state, a crusade in Protestant state, the very definition of property being anchored in Protestant ethics, and so on and so forth. Then we have to take into consideration that the states, nation states in general, are a huge part of the problem, um, and not just racial capitalism. And this precisely becomes the juncture and the disagreement and the difference between uh, if you will, and not to become quote-unquote ideological, because I appreciate anarchism. Anarchism, however, is not just a European phenomena. Uh, most uh, pre-modern societies, arguably BIPOC particularly, were anarchistic. I certainly can speak for Islam on that, uh, in that matter, definitely so. You had black Muslim quote-unquote empires, though they weren't really empires, they resembled a confederacy of sorts. But anyways, uh, to to get back, the state then becomes an issue. Uh, And this is where I would contend with my fellow kin Marxists uh, across the board with all due respect insofar as how that needs to be centered. Because the myth of the state functions on uh, the supposed idea that we drift into chaos, into what they refer to as anarchy in its absence. That the state acts as this interlocutor mediator uh, that uh, functions on the lowest common denominator of constituents to get this party or that party or this charismatic individual or, and so on and so forth elected. Um, but what if we shift to that realm of analysis and begin functioning upon, uh, according to sort of what Richard J. F. Day, my former supervisor, had noted as a logical affinity? Because the problem with Marxism or the metaphysical fetishization of labor is an abstract category that is removed from uh, racial processes or racial analyses and non-intersectional queer analyses, feminist analyses, um, and which indigenous and black scholarship has, of course, also very much critiqued as this abstract metaphysical category uh, and this capitulation to party politics, vanguardist politics, that it, the estate could be used as an instrument for emancipation. And we have Stalin and Lenin to, to speak to that um, and many other examples. But what can we learn from the post-Seattle movements? What if we operate according to a politics of affinity? It isn't just a matter of Gramscian logic of hegemony, but a matter of us contending with the relationships and the violences that we reenact because institutions and state don't exist outside of us. We fill them up and we reenact those violences again that we're born into every single day in our day-to-day encounters. Now we can never delineate the violence or the asymmetries of power amongst us, uh, but we can certainly minimize of them uh, in a certain sense by embodying a politics of responsibility, taking responsibility insofar as, for instance, I've been socialized with patriarchal, matriarchal privileges. So I have to contend with the possibility that I may uh, fall into or engage in sexist or patriarchal actions and so on and so forth. That is a responsibility I take with me to the grave. Somebody who's white, the same thing. They have to deal without act feeding into guilt and shame because that benefits no one, but to actually take responsibility for their whiteness. And here I refer to whiteness not only as a phenotype, as an epidermis, color of skin, but rather cultures of whiteness which BIPOC folks replicate, uh, as this phenomenon teaches, there are post-colonial elites. We have traitors amongst us, unfortunately, uh, not only in the upper echelons of society, but again, in this performative world insofar as artists, musicians, and so on and so forth, that very much have a role to contribute to liberation. Uh, but that's white, been whitewashed, unfortunately, as well. So that becomes the question. Can we organize according to a logical affinity? Can we engage in the fact that the state, in a certain sense, is a central part of the problem? Can we begin investing in land-based projects, land-based alternatives. That's what the Panthers did. That's what indigenous people or the radical indigenous end of the spectrum, insofar as scholars, activists have argued, insofar as every inch of this land has to be rematriated. There is no freeing Palestine without, again, freeing indigenous and black people here. We'd have to talk about abolition, and abolition doesn't demand anything. 
it's useless to say abolition demands because abolition is very much contingent on the settler colonial, again, ongoing process that is very malleable. It's very dynamic. It is always evolving because it also depends on, again, imperial wars that displace people all over the world. This fantasy of upward mobility that quote unquote landed immigrants that are, of course, refugees, all kinds of different stratas of people that are struggling that, that buy into empire and essentially migrate without uh, being held accountable insofar as the responsibilities towards the indigenous land, which very much serves as the true capital for resource extraction within empire and outside. So until people of color, and I don't have much faith, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody to reject solidarity or allyship from white, folks, and given my definition of whiteness, but white people do not lead decolonization. This is the one thing that we as BIPOC folks, given the house and the mitigated differences that we have amongst one another, have to lead ourselves. Um, so yes, we have a lot to figure out as BIPOC folks, but we have to actually engage so far as our responsibilities and accountabilities, particularly to our complicities in indigenous dispossession, after like the slavery projects, and so on and so forth. So I shudder to think when Han Omar shows up at a protest and sits down and claims, and admittedly so, and rightfully so, that this country is founded on genocide and slavery and so on and so forth. What, what is your complicit role then as a respectability politician that plays into respectability politics and so on and so forth as a congresswoman now and so on and so forth, insofar as this ongoing genocide, insofar as now you are reifying the American dream because that's what you uphold as a moniker of an example of assimilation of what America is possible. Well, it can't be both. America never was, or it bears the possibility of fruiting something that we have yet to see and that I don't believe, and many others like me don't believe exists. So which is it? It can't be both at the same time. So that becomes the question. The state is the fundamental crux and it really need, we really need to anchor our analyses, our narratives, and think very critically about what the state and how the state functions, particularly a settler state as the United States and certainly Canada. I mean, look at how far and how long this question of reconciliation has been going on and the founding of Trudeau. Trudeau who marches in um, women's pride and, and queer pride parades, but then goes sells billions of dollars worth of weaponry to Saudi Arabia that beheads queers, that oppresses women and so on and so forth. And hence the hypocrisy of it all. Uh, but that's what activism has devolved into, just an I am a feminist pink t-shirt. So now we see Trump, or now we see, sorry, uh, well, Trump wants to go on with insofar as, uh, insofar as his rallies, uh, good for him. Uh, but that becomes the question with somebody like Biden. Uh, he wants to essentially, as far as I know, the latest news, he wants to have Romney as his health and uh, human services minister. He might be considering Susan Rice for secretary of state, uh, Michelle Flournoy, I believe, is, is also being considered as defense minister uh, as well. So, yeah, is this the assimilation? Is this what people had voted for? Uh, that becomes the question. That's a question that people in the heart of empire have to actually have a response to and an argument for. An alternative strategy. So, again, voting is not a strategy. It is a tactic at best. But the problem with voting is that it gives, particularly with a victory, and again, we yet to see what the fruits of this victory will lead because we don't know whether Trump is going to leave office or on what terms. He might as well burn the plantation before he leaves, and he could very well do that or establish a third party, as you were saying earlier, or launch truly an imperial war, colonial war for the eyes and the hearts of Israel, which Biden wouldn't mind doing anyways because he's an imperialist, who would re-intervene in Syria and Iraq um, we've yet to see how Trump is going to leave, if at all. So the geopolitical implications are very much tied to what it is that we're talking about insofar as a tomorrow and the possibilities of tomorrow. I mean, we saw it with Obama, 26,300 bombs in 2016 alone. This was the president, the first African president, that it was supposed to usher a so-called post-racial society. Look at what he has left us with. Have they closed Guantanamo? What has he done so far as destroying the Middle East in its entirety? The same Middle East that when the higher uprisings arose, Mr. Barack Obama and Mr. Biden essentially said, well, no, Mubarak is not a dictator. He's an ally, but they should allow street protests. So uh, this is the world that we live in, unfortunately, and this is America. And as a settler McDonald-like Bonnie and Clyde culture with its psychotic sort of Hollywood sniper fetishization of its imperial conquests, right? And that is the allure of the dream that, as a matter of fact, has always been a nightmare. Uh, 
for the rest of the world. America is not the heart of the world. It is not particularly exceptional. Unfortunately, it is hegemonic, and its hegemony does have an effect on the rest of the world. Um, but, but yeah, the question is, what can folks within our movements, insofar as Black Lives Matter, uh, movements such as the No Dakota Pipeline, which again, emerged during the Obama era. This is not new. They did not emerge during Trump's era. Uh, what are they capable of mobilizing so far as alternatives? Our people continue to die. Black bodies continue to have their, have, have their necks um, crushed. Uh, and what about indigenous people that are constantly left out of the equation? Uh, and very much conveniently so. And it's very interesting to compare Canada and very much America. In that respect, what gets elided? Where does history start? For each of these, for what constitutes really uh, Turtle Island, uh, so we're talking about Chicago, uh, Chicago, I mean, that was the original name. So do, do we even know what indigenous territories and names and how to live on the land? I'm sick and tired of people sitting down and talking about, you know, screw capitalism, screw this and screw that. Can you actually devise alternatives to the dominant order that exists? Can you grow your own food, not only to feed yourself, to feed others around you? What has Bernie Sanders done truly for the name or in the name of Palestine? He's a champagne imperialist, soft, soft imperialist socialist quote-unquote socialist, and I use that term very loosely in his case. Um, so that becomes the issue, the savior-messiah complex, this vanguardism, this fetishization of particular individuals and movements, uh, the lack of humility, the lack of an ethics of disagreement that exists on the left, and hence Marxists and anarchists tear each other apart, or the lack of an ethics of hospitality between spiritual and non-spiritual activists. But this is, like I said, where religion comes into the equation. What, what does Islamophobia have, and anti-Semitism anti have to deal with anti-Indigenous and anti-Black anti -black struggles? Uh, well, we'd have to sit down and talk about it. Indigenous and Black people were depicted as heathens and savages and godless and so on, despite the fact that a third or fifth of the transatlantic slaves were Muslims. So again, we begin to see intersections, but that's an area, that's an intellectual project. That's a story that needs to be told that coalesces from a religious, political, theological, as well as a cultural, uh, gendered, uh, queer, feminist perspective, everything, uh, in terms of what it is that, that, uh, that we're speaking of. But yes, the grassroots, that is the only hope. What can we learn from the post-Seattle movements? that decided to invest and invest in actually building alternatives on the ground. And again, they're just building on the legacy of our elders that should have taught us lessons uh, that unfortunately we haven't learned from them. And especially, exceptionally, Tahrir. Look at what's going on in Sudan, look at what went on in Syria, letters, Iraq, and so on and so forth. So this isn't over, far from it. So the question is, what is going to emerge next? And uh, our agency is within our own power. Again, abolition does not demand it does not request anything. Statues are important to be removed and beheaded. That is a symbolic act, that is an important act. Why aren't we protesting and burning down the 13 military bases that are named after Confederate soldiers? Isn't that a way to stop imperialism and the hyperdrone warfare, the NSA surveillance, and so on and so forth, and the matrices of power that we're now caught in in a world in which privacy doesn't even exist? These are the questions. Land organizes everything. You know, organizes our perception of gender, our perception of private and public. Absolutely. And it instills an element of humility within us. It reminds us that we are insignificant insofar as our Earth Mother, which has her own timetable. Science is important, but our Earth Mother has her own timetable insofar as when and how to revolt. So, you know, a little bit of humility insofar as what our heavy civilizational existence as species would actually do us some good insofar as paving the way forward. Our relationship with land is absolutely dismally broken. And iron, ironically enough, Trumpism isn't going to end. And those across the Rust Belt I-4 corridor, blue collar workers and otherwise, ultimately they're the ones that are in control of the land. They are the ones that are in control of the arms. Where do the liberal progressives really conglomerate? They live in the cities. That's a problem. We can't really connect with land in the cities. That's part of the buying into the urban metropolis, cosmopolitan, civilizational, everything, phallic existence of high-rise towers and so on and so forth. So um, there are forms of urban zapatismo uh, that can be engaged in, but we really need to connect to land. And in that land and this land needs to be reinvigorated as if every inch of Palestine. So I shudder to think of Muslims, particularly newcomer Muslims that uh, migrate to, like I said, uh, Turtle Island, uh, settler colonial societies, Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth, 
um, ben, and continue on with their charts, their empty rhetoric of free, free Palestine without actually holding themselves accountable. The fact that if they ignore their complicities insofar as indigenous and black struggles, they're no different than Zionists on native Palestine. So I came across an article. We're speaking with activist scholar Mohammed Abdu, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Let Empire Collapse, Why We Need a Decolonial Revolution. Mohammed is author of the forthcoming book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Residences, which is scheduled to be published by Pluto Books in May of 2021. So uh, I came across an article from 2015 that is circulating again on social media. I remember when it came out originally. It's uh, from a website called Burning Spear, which calls itself the official organ of the African People's Socialist Party. The article entitled Colonialism Trumps Fascism in U.S. Elections argues, quote, The tendency to compare our situation with fascism in Nazi Germany and elsewhere is erroneous and outrageous when considering the murder, terror, torture, and exploitation that Africans have endured at the hands of our white democratic colonizers for the past 600 years. A stand that fears Trump fails to recognize that when Africans in the U.S. were subjected to public mass lynchings, that terror was carried out by non-fascist democratic states and ordinary white citizens. Is fear of fascism, do you think the current fear of fascism on the left, is that a distraction from a history of settler colonialism? Is that a a, a purposeful intent at ignoring our history of settler colonialism and to demonize something else that is not the real major problem with our country, which is, again, settler colonialism? Well, thank you for raising that point. Because it's very important. I would have been so saddened if it did not been spoken about. Again, our crisis is one of language. When activists say that the problem is fascism and Trump is a fascist, fascism is a mass psychology. We have William Reich, who was a Nazi, who wrote a book titled The Mass Psychology of Fascism. We have Hannah Arendt, who wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism. What Trump is striving to be is to be a totalitarian. The system itself is fascist. What I mean by that, and it is something that I said earlier in our conversation, where do we learn to become authoritarian? Where do we learn to peg each other, govern one another? Because again, power is rhizomatic. It's not only top down or bottom up, it operates in all directions. So fascism operates in all directions. Where do we learn authoritarianism? It is vis-a-vis the symbolic father that we all have insofar as the state. Where do we learn? And of course, capitalism very much is also authoritarian, but its main function is an Oedipal symbolic mother, if you will, and with us as Oedipal subjects, is to materialize, commoditize everything. Love, friendship, we're pride, again, pride parades, as if that is the quintessential meaning definition of what liberation is. So we're all fascists when I describe my own, the possibility of my own complicity, my own patriarchy. That is a micro-fascism. That is something that I will have to contend with. So we're all fascists. That's not the issue. The issue is the fact of that how do we, again, deal with a macro-fascistic structure that reifies the micro-fascisms that operate in all directions across all strata on a macro meso and micro level at the institutional as well as on a horizontal level and that we sit down and replicate so as to not reify an oppression olympics a competition between struggles amongst ourselves that becomes a difference in terms trump is not a fascist he is i mean he is but he's striving to be a totalitarian the system itself is fascist and that's a whole different operative mode of different organizing and so when we come to recognize again the hollowing God of words and the importance of distinguishing the connection but divergence between totalitarianism and fascism. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there are a lot of regimes within the Middle East, and I don't have to name them by names, um, that are totalitarian from a military, from a quote unquote secular, although I don't believe secularism exists, uh, uh, from a military perspective or a religious orthodox perspective. But fascism is a mass psychology. We all reenact fascistic tendencies insofar as, you know, you see it within activist circles, the guilting, the shaming of a new active, quote unquote, activist that walks into a space uh, in contrast to veteran activists and so on and so forth because of the learning curve that's involved and the assumptions that are imbued, uh, superficial and otherwise, 
given blunt quantum, given what passes for indigenous, what passes for black and so on and so forth. For Arabs, as if there are no black Arabs in the conflation of just discourses and discussions. Oh, well, you Arabs are no different than white people they engage in transatlantic slavery. Fascism is what permits these benign, menial, easy, surface level, a historical comments, despite the fact that no, there wasn't a construction of race the way that white supremacists and white liberals and the Enlightenment project, which is again, a liberal project has constructed. I mean, white supremacy emerges from liberalism before the right wing or the modern right wing had managed to reserve it before we saw it in the Klan and so on and so forth. So this is the irony of all this is the Enlightenment project and what Enlightenment and liberalism with its focus on individualism and so on and so forth, imbued insofar as political, insofar as uh, its racial capitalist project that it very much till now relies on. So yeah, fascism is a mass psychology. It isn't something that conglomerates um, strictly on the right wing. The right wing and Trump, like I said, are just striving to be totalitarian in their outlook. And that's altogether, that's a whole different level uh, of hegemony. But yeah, the system itself is fascist. Hopefully that answers the, the question and the implications of, at least in my humble analysis, uh, the distinction between those two terms and their intersections and so, and so far as social movement organizing. So, One last question for you. We've been speaking with activist scholar Mohammed Abdu, who wrote the Roar magazine article, <clears throat> Let um, Empire Collapse. collapse. <clears throat> Hold a second. Activist scholar Muhammad Abdu wrote the Roar magazine article, Let Empire Collapse. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Residences, which is scheduled to be published in May of 2021. Muhammad is a former adjunct professor at Queen's University. He's currently teaching a course on indigenous land education and black geographies at the University of Toronto and social justice education at the Ontario Institute for studies and education, which is also at the University of Toronto. One last question for you, Mohammed, and our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, but I think this is going to fall in the last category, and that is our audience is going to hate your response. You write from its origins, the trajectory of voting in liberal, progressive, and even some leftist movements are based on several deeply flawed assumptions in this war on black, indigenous, and people of color communities, BIPOC communities. And you have a list of these flawed assumptions, and we're only going to get to one of them today. So everybody should check out your writing over at Aurora Magazine. But many, uh, uh, the first flawed assumption is that the American dream and democracy exist. Now, many Biden-Harris and many Trump-Pence supporters, people from both sides, were posting wherever they could from small-town newspapers to social media, the reason that they were voting for their candidate was because they were voting for the American dream. That is the belief that equality of opportunity is available to any American, allowing the highest aspirations and goals to be achieved by anyone, no matter your circumstances. So is the American dream, and This it's kind of a bigger question, Mohammed. is the American dream a dream of equality, of egalitarianism? And if so, do you, what explains the embrace of equality built into the American dream? What explains that while we have this antagonism toward equality, yet support for the American dream? What explains that contradiction? Well, it's a brilliant question. And I think it, it speaks to sort of the, the general substance and tenor of the conversation, Curtis. And um, what I say, I say, uh, again, having learned from BIPOC elders, uh, and my shortcomings are my own, but what I also say, um, I say for our children that arrive from immortality and the arrows that we shoot towards and uh, towards infinity, that's actually Mouli Abu Jamal. Mouli Abu Jamal is Leonard Cartier, who are very much in prison, who are political prisoners. So when we're talking about the American dream, like I said, uh, is genocide over or after like the slavery projects over? Um, that becomes the question. It, America it has a genocidal ongoing past, uh, present, future, and it's very much homicidal in the present and it's very much suicidal insofar as the future. You tell me how democracy exists when it's laden with redlining, racialized district district remapping, voter uh, disenfranchisement, suppression, partisan gerrymandering, dark money ads, electoral college systems that are often pegged around against the popular vote, citizens united verdicts, uh, 
bills like 5014C that permits to designate social welfare organizations to engage in electoral politics in unregulated ways. You tell me if this is the American dream. You tell me so far as why black bodies are still lying on the sidewalk. You tell me why racialized uh, people within and outside, let alone indigenous people, are suffering the way that they are, that they don't have even access to clean water. You tell me after 600 years years are we to wait another 600 years for the promise the progress of the american dream and at the cost of whom at the cost of whose continued ongoing dispossession people within empire people beyond empire uh, what has happened within the middle east what continues to happen across the world uh, uh, i think speaks to itself let alone the devastation of what empire is reaping insofar as uh, the chickens coming home to roost Malcolm was very much an anti-American for that reason. That is why MLK was very much a staunch anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist for that reason. And before he was assassinated, may he rest in peace, the great MLK became very disillusioned. And perhaps that was the precise reason for his assassination besides obviously members of the Black Panther Party, besides anybody who speaks honestly truth to justice and even remotely contends the foundation, the promise, of that dream. Uh, I would say it was always a delusion for precisely that reason. I think after 600 years, Yabasta, enough is enough. So uh, the havoc that has been reaped has been reaped. So how can we heal? How can we heal the earth? How can we move forward as a species without again neglecting the power dynamics uh, and differentials that exist between us? I don't have a hope in humanity per se, uh, at the end of the day, those who have led us, our elders, our movements, were a small fringe, and they were despised and resented. They had a great heart, a magnanimous heart, a promising heart, but for a different set of dreams, uh, a different set of principles, uh, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, but also, like I said, decolonial, because there's a huge difference between the post-colonial assumptions, as we were speaking earlier, and what decolonization actually means. Uh, we need to mitigate the relationships between us uh, and we need to keep the state out of the picture uh, if we are to avoid further cataclysms. And that's not a geopolitical, but also theoretical and certainly frontline field work movement uh, experience. Uh, that's where I'm coming from. So uh, I'm just sick and tired of the endless postponement of judgment. We're living this Kafkaesque novel in which we're postponing uh, the, the indefinite because we fear, again, uh, the promise of an imagined different world. We have a poverty of imagination as BIPOC folks because we have to constantly refer to, capitulate to, white Eurocentric frameworks of reference in order to legitimize our own thoughts, our own possibilities or impossibilities to seem sensible, to tame from our supposed savagery and so on. What if we thought outside the box? What if we tore the whole paper and the color box that exists within it and actually started to paint a different world? Uh, that's the promise, that's what I live on. It will only be a small subset that will not so much as lead because we rely on our ancestors and our elders and the legacies that we already have. I don't need to refer to some democratic socialist platforms that, uh, that, uh, that preserve the settler colonial state, that indigenous people. And again, it is not I, and I'm not speaking strictly as a Muslim anarchist. Let us look at what radical indigenous and indigenous scholarship and indigenous movements and black radical traditions, abolitionist traditions, historically have been saying and continue to say. Let us also build from the history uh, of those mistakes. But they seem to say fundamentally one and the same thing of how emancipation is to be achieved insofar as why land is important for indigenous people, its rematriation, how this is spiritual to them and not strictly simply about social justice. This is about political governance for them because sorry, the state is antithetical to indigenous understandings of sovereignty and nationhood and so on and so forth. So are we gonna take indigenous people seriously or are we just going to play pretend uh, and pay again, performative woke politics insofar as an homage to, oh, well, we respect uh, Native Americans, we had a Native uh, American president, uh, Charles Curtis, 1928, during the Hoover administration, and so on and so forth. Uh, where are indigenous people now given 600 years of manifest destiny, doctrines of discovery as religious projects? 
where are black people now? Are they not still shackled? The ship very much in the wake still exists, to use Christina Sharp's metaphor of the wake, the awakening work, uh, because we can no longer be sh shackled uh, in that sense. We have to appreciate the show in Tiffany Lufavo King's uh, uh, own work uh, and the importance of the shawl insofar as the congruence and confluence in a certain sense of indigenous and black struggles and I would argue like I said Muslim struggles and with the plethora of unruly and unruled meanings that are associated with blackness and indigenous and otherwise so uh, no it was always a false dream and it never will be Mohammed, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week. This article at Rora Magazine that you've written, Let Empire Collapse, Why We Need a Decolonial Revolution, is something that I think everybody who is celebrating what may be a victory for Joe Biden, this is something that you should be reading to bring yourself back down to earth and to think about the bigger picture and to think about the people who are the most marginalized, to think about black people, think about the indigenous, think about people of color, and to consider them in how this election will affect them, how little it will affect them, and how negatively, no matter how it ends, it will affect them. So thank you so much, Mohammed, for being on our show. Really is a pleasure, and I'll be checking out your writing in the future. It is, it is my honor. I'm humbled. And I would just like to say one last thing, if you don't mind. Go I know ahead. we're running time. I completely understand uh, insofar as voting. Uh, voting is not a form of harm reduction, but I do understand the sense of relief that might can give in the weight of the past four years. Uh, but I hope, uh, particularly for those that do not have relief, for those that did or are breathing a sigh of relief, uh, good, I want you to take that sigh of relief. It is well-deserved, it has been harsh uh, across the different oppressions or across our different positionalities, but please don't hang up your hopes, your false hopes, uh, remain or keep your strong wind anchored in principles, anchored in history. For those who have no relief, our struggle continues and my heart is certainly with you because as far as I'm concerned, there is no relief whatsoever. Thank you again, Curtis. I'm very humbled and honored. Thank you to Daphne as well, as well as Alexander. Thank you all for reaching out. Uh, this is Helen. I'm truly honored and humbled to have been with you. Thank you, Mohammed, and enjoy your week. Thank you. Take good care. This is not the media. This is hell. Daphne, please remind us what is last week's question from hell and tell us how the rest of our listeners are answering this week's question. Uh, yeah, last week's question from hell was what happens. What happens? And we have a few more. Um, okay, uh, Austin R. says, The beginning of the end times prophesied in the Bible. All right. Simon S. says, What happens when I turn off this simulation as it's getting ridiculous? You all go back to oblivion. <laughs> Spencer N. says, I think Dems win back Pennsylvania and Michigan, but only one of Wisconsin or North and North Carolina, not both, leading to very narrow Biden win. That's takes a week to establish because of delayed vote counting and GOP red F Ari. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think uh, they really want to stay in charge of those, so they'll hand it off to Biden eventually. Or I could be completely wrong and Trump could lose handily. But one thing's for certain, it won't matter because this is hell. Oh, that was right oh. before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the last one is everything via DM, Twitter, email, etc. Um, there might be a repeat in there, so just make sure that you don't read the same one twice. Mm, 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 mm. Okay, I think not. Okay. Uh, Flying Needle says Trump thinks he wins. Uh, have you heard that one? No. Trump thinks he wins. Uh, blood rushes to his face, and he has an aneurysm. <laughs> Biden thinks he wins. Blood rushes to his one remaining hair and starves his diminishing brain neurons. <laughs> Is institutionalized in an even bigger babbling mess. You thought this is hell. However, tomorrow under President Pence, this is true hell. <laughs> that would be. Uh, and finally, Neil C. Uh, uh, um, Trump thinks he wins. Uh, okay, that is really that's the, Yeah, <laughs> so. that's, the, that's the repeat, yeah. Okay. All right, so uh, let's see. My favorites were Eric saying, what happens? What happens when it comes to last week's election? The one that we're still counting, I guess, and suing over and having rallies about. Eric said, my beer fridge empties. Marco said, violence and Christmas music, mass hysteria. Pitbull released a new song. 
Uh, Andrea saying a big collective sigh of disappointment and annoyance. Mason saying Bernie wins. Here's my 20 page think piece on how it's still possible if enough people phone bank and knock doors. David saying Jeb. Aaron saying nothing fundamentally changes. That makes last week's winner of the question from hell and a winner of a new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can go to thisishell.com right now and click on support to see all of our merchandise. That makes last week's winner Daphne. I don't know if it should it be Bernie wins. Here's my 20 page think piece on how it's still possible. Or should it be violence and Christmas music, mass hysteria, Pitbull releases a new song. Which one do you think? I left more at the Bernie one. Yeah. What about the big collective sigh of disappointment and annoyance? Um, those are great. Uh, uh, let's go with Bernie then. Cool. All right. Mason, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell was what happens. And Mason said, Bernie wins. Here's my 20-page think piece on how it's still possible if enough people <laughs> phone bank and knock doors. My answer to last week's question from hell, what happens is... Well, two weeks ago on Patreon, I gave my prediction as to what happened. So if you want to hear what I think what happens, you got to go back to our Friday, October 30th, Devil's Night Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. This one's a little little bit complicated because the first two have to do with each other. In November 1580, 440 years ago this week, in the midst of a rebellion by Irish feudal lords against English rule, hundreds of mostly Spanish and Italian soldiers, sponsored by the Roman Catholic papacy, arrived at the Irish village of Ardnacoidna, also known by its English name of Smerwick. Sure, now you tell me. I butchered Ardnagudnya. And now you're telling me it's Smerwick? Thanks, Ronaldo. They meant to join forces with the Irish rebels, but were prevented from doing so by forces loyal to the English crown, who drove them into retreat at a hastily improvised fort called Dunanwar. The English soldiers laid siege to the fort for three days, subjecting it to artillery bombardment. When the papal forces finally offered to surrender, the English commander rejected their terms and ordered his men to begin a mass slaughter. So, aside from the fact that it appears Ronaldo wanted to hear me stumble over my Gaelic, if you ever wondered who were bigger a-holes, the Vatican or the British, score, score one here for the British being worse. In a continuation of that entry, on November 10th, 1580, 440 years ago, this Tuesday, tomorrow... In fact, the English commander's men went in and killed more than 600 papal foot soldiers in a massacre of beheading, because nothing says cruelty and brutality like a beheading. The higher-ranking papal officers had their lives briefly spared, but were tortured to death if they refused to disavow their allegiance to the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. Most were hanged after having their limbs broken with iron bars. Their bodies were then thrown into the sea, so my guess is they did not disavow their Catholic faith. Among the young English captains who carried out the massacre was none other than Walter Raleigh, the famous explorer and poet who 38 years later would himself be executed by beheading, which serves anyone right who has been involved in beheading others. When the brutal massacre of the papal troops in Ireland was included in the multiple charges against Raleigh, he argued that he had just been following orders. And that's an important lesson to remember. Throughout history, just carrying out orders has not worked as a defense that well. So when, you know, when, when you're given orders, uh, it just doesn't work out. You should probably, you know, always reconsider those orders. Don't just say I was just taking orders, just carrying out orders. You should probably always re-examine and think about them a little bit more. Of course, they're not really orders if you're re-examining them, so really, let's just do away with orders. Finally, in Rotten History, on November 14, 1970, 50 years ago, this Saturday, a chartered Southern Airways DC-9, trying to land in rain and fog at an airport near Huntington, West Virginia, instead flew into a hill just short of the airport and exploded into flames. Everyone aboard was killed. Among the 95 passengers were all 36 members of the Marshall University football team, along with nine members of the coaching staff. The team was on its way home after losing to East Carolina University by a score of 17-14. to 14. The crash was later attributed to pilot error. 
Responding to demand from local fans, the university cobbled together a new football team the following year, made up of junior varsity players and various student-athletes from other sports. Against all expectations, it managed to win two games in its first season after the disaster. Pretty inspirational stuff. Of course, they were also shut out five of their last six games, being outscored 154-12, to with all 12 points coming in their win against Bowling Green. So yeah, it was a miracle that they won any games that year, let alone two. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Special thanks to Raymond and Hannah for going to thisishell.com and showing their support. If you want to support thisishell.com, just go to thisishell.com and click on support. This is Hell is completely listener-supported, so without you, we got nothing. Daphne, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Um, tomorrow, Georgios Kalis and Suzanne Paulson are here to talk about their book, The Case for Degrowth. The Case for Degrowth, something that is not a topic that you will hear anywhere else. Thanks to Daphne Agassen for producing today's show. Thanks to Alex Jerry for all of the work that he does on the show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Thanks to our guest, Muhammad, this week. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.